God calls his children to be eternally thankful for all of his goodness, but he also wants us to be content with the various providences that he provides for us. In this final sermon on Thanksgiving, we now explore the grace and duty of being content. Our old covenant reading coming from Psalm 100, Psalm 100, the entire Psalm, five verses, Psalm 100. By inspiration of God, a psalm of praise by the psalmist, the writer says this, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he that hath made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him, and bless his name. For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endureth to all generations. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Philippi, chapter 4, Philippians in chapter 4, beginning in verse 6, beginning in verse 6 through verse 13. By the same Spirit, the Apostle writes, Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and mind through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, now that at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Thus far is the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Now while we are called of God to be consistently thankful for his mercy and the great many blessings that he has bestowed upon us, no matter what the circumstances, there is a distinct difference between being thankful and being content. Now, while they are connected, simply being thankful without being content is not enough. The dynamic is simple. In other words, this is what our position should be. The greater degree of love toward God, the greater degree of thanksgiving, and then the result should be the greater degree of contentment. Being thankful and being content is both a grace and a duty. 
These are two essential character traits of the children of God. Thankfulness and contentment. These are the result of the new birth, and they are to be openly and consistently exhibited throughout our lives, both being thankful, praising God, and being content with the providence that God has bestowed upon us. But as we shall see, while the grace of God unto thanksgiving and contentment is certainly a grace given to us by God, it must also be considered as something learned. So it's both a grace and a duty. For example, children have to be taught to say please and thank you. In other words, they need to be educated. They need to learn as to why they should be thankful. Moreover, they need to learn how to be content in the things that God has given them and why they should be content. Now, these character traits must be drilled into the child soon in an early age and continued as the child grows up. Because if these traits of thanksgiving and contentment are not impressed upon the children, either through gentle discipling or chastising discipline, the child will grow up as being unthankful, dissatisfied, covetous, frustrated, and even murmuring. It will be an ugly individual without that posture of being thankful. So these things need to be drilled into the child. Without a posture of sincere thanksgiving, there can never be any real contentment in this life. It's interesting how so many are thankful and then say, yeah, but, I'm thankful for this, but I want more. I want this other thing. In other words, I'm not really content, and yet I'm being thankful. It's, it's, it's an oxymoron. Now, Paul exhibits this idea of being thankful. And he exhorts the Philippians to be thankful for God's provisions, which he sees as a path to godly contentment. Notice what he says, Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. So first, he tells the Philippians that their prayers and their supplications, their requests, are to be tempered with a spirit of thanksgiving a spirit of thankfulness. This is Paul's reminder to the Philippians. It's as if he said, don't pray without first rendering sincere thanksgiving for God's provisions. So they have to be coupled together. Prayer and thanksgiving have to be two sides of the same coin. If we were to read further between the lines, it seems as if Paul is also warning the Philippians from having their prayers motivated from the posture of covetousness and frustration over the things that God had not given them, over the things that God had withheld from them, rather than being thankful for what they already have received. And that's a real problem. Sometimes we're focusing on what God has withheld from us instead of focusing upon what God has already given us. So Paul's counsel to the Philippians is that their prayers are not to only be focused upon individual needs as if God is there to satisfy all their carnal desires, but they are to be thankful and content for what God has already given. Because the discontented individual, the one who is dissatisfied with the provisions of God, is the person that says, well, give me this and give me that, and I want this and I want that. And sometimes that's what our prayers look like. And this seems to be the pattern of the modern day prayer life, which is distinct from the biblical model. The proverb writer's choice of words is interesting, of discontentment and covetousness, of the the give me this and give me that, and, and, and God is the God who just gives. 
In Proverbs 30, verse 15 and 16, the horse leech hath two daughters crying, Give, give! There are three things that are never satisfied. Yea, four things say not, it is enough. The grave and the barren womb, the earth that is not filled with water, and the fire that saith not, it is enough. So, the proverb writer's choice of words is interesting. The term he uses for this dissatisfied individual, this covetous person, this person that says, God, give me this and give me that, he uses this word, the, the, the horse leech. No, that's not a common term. In fact, it's only used here in the scriptures and nowhere else. Horse leech. Well, when you look at the etymology of the word, it means someone who sucks out something, like a leech. It sucks the blood out of the individual, just like a leech. So he calls them the leeches that are on a horse, sucking the blood out of the horse. They're saying it's not enough. The leech keeps pulling and pulling and pulling the life's blood from the horse or from the individual. The majority of our prayer life should center upon praising and thanking God and not on what God can give us. We are to seek for a spiritual kingdom. We are to have a spiritual focus, a kingdom focus, a focus upon God's glory and God's righteousness. If we desire long life, and who does not desire long life? We should desire long life so that we might serve God throughout our life as long as possible until we are wrung out like a sponge for the kingdom's glory. That's not usually how we pray for a long life. We usually pray for a long life because we just like life and we don't want to die so soon. If we pray for health, it should be so that we would glorify God with our strength. If we pray for wisdom or money or whatever it is that we pray for, our focus should be for the kingdom of God, for the advancement of the kingdom. If we pray for children, it is so that we can raise them up as warriors for the kingdom of Christ. So everything must have a spiritual focus, a focus upon God, not upon us. And this was the intent of the Lord's Prayer. When the Lord taught the apostles how to pray, they wanted to know, how should we be praying? Because it seems as if they might have understood that the Pharisees were praying to be seen of men. So they asked them, Lord, how how should we pray? And what does the Lord tell them? Our Father, who art in heaven, holy is thy name. Hallowed be thy name. Our Father is a heavenly heavenly king, a heavenly Father. His focus is upon heavenly things, upon spiritual realities, upon advancing the kingdom. And this is why Christ said, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That's the focus. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it has been declared in heaven. It's supposed to be a kingdom focus. And it is only after the praises of God are spoken in humility, only then are we to ask for our daily needs to be satisfied. Give us this day our daily bread. Now by using the phrase, be careful for nothing, Paul is telling the Philippians not to be anxious. Don't fret. Paul is counseling the Philippians in a very pastoral fashion not to fret over the things that are out of their hands and to be thankful for God for what He has already provided. Be thankful for what God has already provided because God knows exactly what His children need and exactly the time when they need it. 
You think about that. God knows exactly what we need and when we need it. And it's from God's provisions that we are to be satisfied. And that satisfaction, understanding that God provides exactly what we need and when we need it, that translates into contentment. Paul reminds the Philippians that they are to be thankful for every providence, both good and evil, while beseeching God with prayers and supplications. Notice the next verse in verse 7. And the peace of God, the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So Paul here is stating that whenever the saint prays from the position of thankfulness for all that God has done, is doing, and will do, he will be blessed with the peace of God which passes all understanding. And that is what satisfies the soul, bringing it into a state of calm contentment. Solomon also tells us this in Proverbs 19.23, The fear of the Lord tendeth to life, and he that has it shall abide satisfied. The honor of God, honoring God, fear the fear of God, fearing God, honoring Him, bowing for Him in humility, That leads to life. And those who have the fear of God, Solomon says, shall abide satisfied. They will be contented. Paul then gives a catalog of things that the saint is to meditate upon in order to solidify this posture of peace. Notice he lists in verse 8 and 9, Finally, brethren, here's what you are to focus upon. Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, Whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, lovely, good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things, not on the things that you think you need in the secular realm. Your focus should be on these things. And those things, notice, and those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, Paul is saying, I am the example here, as I follow the example of Christ, do these things And if you focus on these things, the God of peace shall be with you. Once you depart from focusing upon these things, we lose our moorings. And it is that peace resulting from sincere thanksgiving that results in biblical contentment, which culminates in peace. Note how Paul moves from thanksgiving and peace into contentment in verse 10 and following Philippians chapter 4. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again. Wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I have spoken in respect of want. I have learned. Notice what he says. For I have learned. In whatsoever state I am, there were to be content. I'm learning these things. From the trials and from the afflictions, I'm learning how to be content in what God has orchestrated for me in my life. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere. And in all things, I am instructed. I'm learning by the instruction of my Heavenly Father both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And therefore, by God's grace, I can then do all things through Christ which strengthens me. Notice, he's not complaining here that when he was abased, He was saying, oh, I wish I could abound. No, he's just saying what is. 
Consider the doctrine that he is proposing. What he is saying is, without a sincere and internalized understanding of who the Lord is, what he has done in behalf of his people in time and in history, all for his glory, all for the building of his kingdom, and what his promises are, thanksgiving, peace, and contentment cannot be realized. We have to understand who God is. And we are learning that daily. Even the Apostle Paul says, I have learned. I'm now being instructed. So in order to render sincere thanksgiving so as to be content and at peace, we need to have a working knowledge, a working understanding of the ways of God according to his covenant revelation. So what does it mean for the Christian to be content? What what does that even mean? Because by nature, we are not content. We are like the horse-leached daughters. Well, first, according to the Apostle Paul, while contentment is a grace, it is also a learned discipline. Notice what he says, For I have learned, I'm learning these things, in whatsoever state I am, I will be content. Therewith, to be content. Through the many trials and and situations that providence had dictated toward Paul, he learned how to be content. Everything that happens to us happens to us for a reason from our Heavenly Father. It's either a test of faith or a time of chastisement. But in every case, it is always a time of spiritual maturation for the good of our being and for the glory of Christ Himself. God tells Jeremiah and all of His saints this in Jeremiah 29.11. Now think about this is God speaking to you. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not evil to give you an expected end. God's thoughts to us are only good. Even the chastisements that he brings, even the difficulties in our life, the sicknesses, the hardships, the trials, those are all thoughts of good. God is forever grooming us through his providence. He's purging us by the events that he orchestrates in our life for our good and for his glory. His ultimate goal is that we would then trust him more and more and more. And that's what we are learning. And once we are brought to that mature position of unwavering trust, we can more easily become content with his plan for us. No matter what that is. And that leads us to thanksgiving and praise. The great Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs in his celebrated work, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. You think about that title, The Rare Jewel of Being Content. Because contentment is a rare jewel. Because it's not according to our Adamic nature. It's, It's distinct. Notice what Jeremiah Burroughs says. Contentment in every condition is a great art a spiritual mystery. It is to be learned and to be learned as a mystery. And so in verse 12, Paul affirms, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed. The word which is translated instructed is derived from the word that signifies a mystery. It is just as if he said, I have learned the mystery of this business. This business of contentment. Secondly, contentment can also be defined as having an inward, quiet, and peaceful frame of mind about the things that are and the things that will be, knowing that God is Lord and sovereign, the sovereign orchestrator of all things, both good and evil. 
and therefore you can sleep at night when you see the world going to hell in a handbasket, when you see the wicked rising up as a great palm tree, as a bay tree, as a wickedness overarching the entire realm of our America. You can sleep at night because God is on the throne. The soul that is content delights in the Father's wise and loving disposal in every condition and situation. What we are experiencing here in America is the Father's wise disposal of the situation. It is needful. Nothing that happens in the world is not needful. Not needful for His glory. Everything that happens is needful for His glory. Even the most horrible things. The individual that is content finds itself in a gracious frame of heart. And then he could say, all is well with my soul. God is on the throne. The knowledge that God is good and his mercies are overwhelming, even when many of them are hidden from us, that is the road to biblical contentment. The contented soul fights against the flesh to murmur against providences that seem to be confusing or trying. And we, we often say, we say, why is this happening? I don't want this to happen. I want that to happen. Well, wait a minute. Stop right there. Why is it happening? Because God has orchestrated it. And we rest in that. So the contented soul is resolute and refuses to murmur against God or His providence even when His flesh rises up in discontentment. Because Paul knew and he's teaching us how to thrive in whatsoever condition that we find ourselves in. Paul had mastered the mystery of contentment. Notice what he says in verse 12. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. But he did not achieve this with much difficulty. It's not that he woke up one day and said, I know how to do all this now. No, he had to learn it. Little by little. Day after day, year after year. He had to suffer under the assault of the flesh that cried out for more. And that's what our flesh does. And if we give way to it, our flesh will continue to cry more and more and more because the flesh will never be satisfied. So Paul had to suffer under the assault of the flesh that cried out for more or for something different than what God had ordained as his lot. You know, we do that too, don't we? I I, I would rather something different. I want to be Bill Gates, God forbid. But I want to be this guy. I want to be the other guy. I want his money. I want that situation. I want the other situation. Stop right there. This is all sin. This is all discontentment. This is dissatisfaction with God's orchestration of your life. Paul understood what his lot was. Notice what he says in Romans chapter 7, verse 15 and verse 24. He was a man suffering under the assault of his own flesh that he had to mortify. He says, For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. I'm fighting against my own flesh. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? He didn't have a cushy life. He wasn't just some superman that said, Well, now I'm a Christian, now I'm going to show you how it's done. No, he learned it. And he suffered under it. And in addition to his inward struggles, he had to deal with God's providence that continued to buffet him daily. Think about this. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 and following. Paul's testimony. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths often. 
of the Jews five times received I forty stripes save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I've been in the deep. In journeyings often. In perils of waters. In perils of robbers. In perils of mine own countrymen. In perils by the heathen. In perils in the city. In perils in the wilderness. In perils in the sea. In perils among false brethren. In weariness and painfulness. In watchings often. In hunger and thirst. In fastings often. In cold and nakedness. Beside those things that are without. That which cometh upon me daily. The care of all the churches. This was a man who had trouble. You think you got trouble? You think you know what trouble is? And yet. What does he say to the church at Philippi? I have learned to be content. I am trusting God. So what is exactly the secret to contentment? Well, it's exactly that. Contentment comes by trusting God. It is fueled by the grace of faith, which results in a quiet and peaceable spirit. It is that contented Christian that is not easily shaken by providence and says he knows that God is orchestrating the situation perfectly and for a glorious end, whatever that might be. Consider the psalmist's disposition. Note that before he considers the storm that might befall him, he first begins by assuring himself in God. Notice what he says, Psalm 46, verse 1 and following. God is our refuge and strength. Notice he's making a declaration. He's affirming, God is my fortress. God is my strength. A very present help in trouble. Therefore, will not we fear, even though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof, there is a river. The streams whereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her and that right early. That is a man of faith. That is a man looking at the destruction of everything and yet God is my refuge. God is in the midst of His people she will not be moved. And this is why David, in concert with Solomon, his son, was able to advise the following. Notice Psalm 37, 1, 7, 8, and then Proverbs 24, 19. Fret not thyself because of evildoers. Notice, don't worry. Neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. Rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way, because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. Cease from anger. Forsake wrath. Fret not thyself in any wise to do evil. And then Proverbs 24:19. Fret not thyself because of evil men. Neither be thou envious at the wicked. Trust God. Trust God. Trust God. Secondly, contentment is perfected by the mortification of discontentment, dissatisfaction, and frustration. We have to mortify our minds toward discontentment. That must be mortified. We mortify our discontentment. Whenever we feel dissatisfied, we have to put it to death. Whenever we feel frustrated, we have to put it to death. We have to beat on it. We have to realize, no, this is God's will. The contented soul opposes any unsettling or instability of spirit which seeks to assault his resolve in the Lord. So when you feel 
discouraged, when you feel dissatisfied, when you start looking out there at the wicked or wanting this thing of the world, deal with it in prayer and oppose it because it will destroy you. The contented soul argues against any notion of discontentment. We ask the question, why, why do I feel this way? Well, I'm, I'm dissatisfied. Why would I be dissatisfied? God has given me everything I need. What do I need? Burroughs asserts this. Notice what he says. The contented spirit is opposed to an unsettled and unstable spirit, whereby the heart is distracted from the present duty that God requires in our several relationships toward God, ourselves, and others. We should prize duty more highly than to be distracted by every trivial occasion. We need to recalibrate our thinking. Jesus says this, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life. In other words, don't be anxious, don't have a division of mind. Literally, that's what it means. What ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on, is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment? And then he goes into the example. Behold, the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? I will care for you. Why are you discouraged? Why are you dissatisfied? Why are you not content? I am caring for you. I am the sovereign creator of the world. I created the world with a word. Will I not care for you? Why take thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field. How they grow, they toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you, that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? In other words, I want you to have more faith. I want you to trust God. Therefore, don't be anxious. Take no thought, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the nations seek, the wicked Gentiles of the world seek. That's not your position. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. And that's what he deals with. He deals with your needs and he gives you what you need. Note the remedy. The final verse in that section. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then you have nothing to worry about because all these things will be added unto you. We worry about too many things. We don't focus upon our duty before God. We're worried about everything else. What is God saying? Focus on your duty before God and you won't have to worry about anything else. This admonition is given on the heels of the prohibition of having two masters. So Jesus is teaching that if you have God as your supreme master and the focus of your life, you won't be distracted from serving Him. And the result is godly contentment. The third point, contentment is found in God's purpose alone. The contented man finds his life's purpose in Jesus Christ and his will as lawgiver, judge, and king. He trusts God's orchestration of all things. He believes the promises of God as to the future both for his life, the life of his loved ones, and the world at large. He lives in the sunshine of God's providential blessings and his promises, and when things get dark, he sustains himself in the knowledge of those promises. Notice what Jeremiah says. Again, I know the thoughts that I think toward you to give you peace, not of evil. I'm going to give you an expected end. 
And then the psalmist says this, Psalm 98. Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. For he hath done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm hath gotten him the victory. Again, Burroughs comments, he says, The contented soul is contented by the melting of his will and desires into God's will and desires. I'm going to read that again. The contented soul. You want to be content? You want to be at peace with the ravages and the, and the tumult of your heart? The contented soul, Burroughs says, is contented by the melting of his will, his will and desires into God's will and desires. By this means he gains contentment. It is not by having his own desires satisfied. He makes God's will and his own the same. You see, we think that if we got everything that we desired, we would be satisfied. Not so. Only when we make God's will our will and not our will God's will that we have contentment. But the fourth point is this. Contentment is really mysterious. It's a mysterious enigma because the Christian man, while he's the most contented in this world, he's also the most unsatisfied man in this world. In Christ and in God's decree for his life, he is content. But in the world, in the church, and in his own body of Adamic death, he is a, a man who is of most discontent and most dissatisfied because he longs for the day when he will finally be free from sin and the body of this death. And the same goes for how he thinks of the world because he longs for the day when Christ shall actually reform the church as he puts down all rebellious churchmen and he raises up his righteousness in the civil realm, putting down the rebellious civil realm, placing all authority under his feet in time and in history. And until that happens, the man who is content with God is still discontented because he sees the ravages of sin in the world. So he's both satisfied and dissatisfied at the same time. And this brings us to the final aspect of contentment. The contented soul understands works toward and looks forward to the kingdom's consummation upon the earth in the realm of time and history according to the promise of the covenant. And this is where we can now attach hope to the catalog of contentment, thanksgiving, and peace. So we have thanksgiving, contentment, peace, and now we can attach hope to that catalog. So as a result of that hope, which includes our eternal spiritual hope, we have the hope of worldwide righteousness coming to pass in time in history when Jesus finally destroys all enemies under his feet. So we don't really worry about the world going to hell in a handcart. We know that Christ is going to be victorious in time and in history. And it is the realization of that hope and the totality of Christ's victory that gives us that contentment even at the same time while at this moment we are discontented because of the ravages of sin in the world. The saint is therefore content knowing that Jesus is Lord and he has come to cast down all the enemies that rise up against his majesty. Paul explains this in 1 Corinthians 15.25. He says, For he must reign until he hath put all enemies under his feet. And in this statement, Paul expresses one undeniable fact that Christ is reigning now and he will continue to do so until all the enemies are subdued. And that's what we hope for. This reality was the sum total of Paul's thanksgiving, contentment, peace and hope. R.J. Rushton, he comments further. Notice what he says. Christ's victory is in time and eternity. 
in the world of matter as well as in the realm of the spirit. This is the eschatological hope of the saint, which is the foundation of the saint's ultimate contentment. But this eschatological position of what is known theologically as postmillennialism is nothing new. It has been the dominant position throughout all of the ages until just recently, which is why there's so much fear and fretting, discontentment and uncertainty in the church itself and among Christians, not only of the world, but of the Christian people. But for the saint who understands the surety of Christ's covenant promise, he is secure. He knows that Christ has prevailed. He knows that Christ will prevail. He knows that the promises will be realized in time and in history on earth. Rustuni says it this way. He says, post-millennialism will again prevail because it is the truth of God and His inscripturated word. As an eschatology of victory, it will inspire men with the power of God and as with the great saints of old and the Puritans of yesteryears, lead again and more enduringly to the triumph of Christ in every area, bringing every sphere of thought and action into captivity to Christ. Because the Word of God deals with every aspect of civilization. There is nothing in the Word of God that doesn't deal with everything in the world. Everything is dealt with in God's Word. No one can ever say, well, God's Word doesn't talk about that, or God's Word doesn't talk... No, 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 no. Then it is not God's Word that you're thinking of. But God's Word deals with everything. Consider for a moment the historical position of the Reformation as depicted by Calvin concerning the victory of Christ over the world. Notice in his institutes what he says. But our doctrine must stand sublime above all the glory of the world and invincibly by all its power because it is not ours but that of the living God and his anointed whom the Father has appointed king that he may rule from sea to sea and from the rivers even to the ends of the earth and so rule to smite the whole earth and its strength of iron and brass its splendor of gold and silver, with the mere rod of his mouth, and break them in pieces like a potter's vessel, according to the magnificent predictions of the prophets respecting his kingdom. Calvin was a post-millennialist. He understood the eschatology of victory. David, too, of course, understood the promise of victory and the contentment resulting because of that hope. And for this, David gives thanks. Notice, he says in First Chronicles chapter 29, Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heaven and in the earth is Thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and Thou art exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come of Thee, and Thou reignest over all. And in thine hand is power and might. And in thine hand it is to make great and to give strength unto all. Now therefore, our God, we thank thee and praise thy glorious name. This is the hope of Christianity. Even in the darkness of our day, we look beyond. We look to the hope of what the scriptures teach us. And it is that hope, and according to that hope, and because of that hope, that the saint can say with the apostle, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.